Good morning. Over Christmas, I was so excited to be at Parkerport. I'd taken uh, December, Sunday mornings in December, I uh, took off from, from uh, teaching and preaching um, at different churches, and I was just able to be here with you all most of December. And uh, then, surprise, I get to actually teach here, which it's been a while since I've taught here. So glad to be back and with you and in the pulpit today. Thanks, DJ. Um, I wanted to uh, also thank you for the fact that, you know, Parker Ford is uh, the home base for us in the ministry of Netzer and has been an enormous amount of support to us on a number of levels. I know that there's uh, many in this room who pray for us on a regular basis. I also know that a lot of our financial support comes from Parker Ford for the mission work that we do. You know, there's only one body of Christ, um, but that body has a difficult time with some of the connectors, as Terry was talking about, the back not working right and having degenerative problems. The body of Christ at times has had some real problems staying connected and working together. And uh, even as you were praying that, that this body would be helpful to Terry during that time, we are a body according to the scriptures, and that body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. And so we work all the time, what we do is we go around working at building and strengthening the ligaments in the, in the wider church. And so we do that all over the place, all over southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, Friday night we had leaders from uh, pastoral groups coming to our house uh, to train those leaders who lead the pastors in the different areas that we've started these uh, regional groups. And so Jen was uh, hard at it all day on Friday, getting our house ready for all these uh, <coughs> leaders of those pastoral groups coming over, and we just had an awesome time together. I don't know if you know the update. Um, Jen just left her job that she's been at for 20 years, um, and she did that. Uh, we, we have been praying about that and really sensed that this is a time where Jen's um, being called to work more fully with what it is that I've been working at, we've been working at it together, but she's going to be able to engage more fully, so we're pretty pumped about that right now. And uh, also tomorrow we leave uh, to go to Los Angeles, uh, or no, not tomorrow, this afternoon, we leave to go to, <laughs> time's like, whatever, um, we leave to go to Los Angeles. There's an there's a organization called Movement Day, which is an international organization working at similar things to what Metro's working at, helping the church collaborate in order to serve cities and metropolitan areas. And uh, I'm going out to represent Philly Gospel Movement because we've been partnering with uh, the Philly Gospel Movement, which is an organization that's partnering churches all across the city of Philadelphia right now. Uh, and a wonderfully diverse uh, movement happening in, in Philadelphia. And so uh, we're privileged to be able to go represent uh, them out at their conference this week. Um, so you can be praying for us as we go out there. So that's some of the update of what's going on. I could, I could go on all, all day about the update, but I just want to thank you for your support and thank you for being home base and thank you for being family. I appreciate that. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just honor you and bless you. We praise you, God. I thank you for uh, filling DJ with that song and for just blessing him to, to have that song that he could lead us in the fullness of God dwelling in you, Jesus. We thank you that you've allowed us to dwell in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're in Hebrews 12, 1-3, this new sermon series that's kicking off. 
is about the story of Jesus. It's going to be, I, I was uh, with DJ as we were talking through what this series was going to be all about. And when you talk about the story of Jesus in Christianity, that's like, this is it, right? This is it. This is the thing. This is the story. And it's going to be a big series that's going to last most of the year, most likely. And uh, so as we kick this off, we just want to frame a little bit about what this is actually all about. And uh, I don't know what the practice has been recently, but you know, my favorite is that when we read the Word of God at the beginning of a message, that we just honor God's Word by standing. And I know you've been up and down a lot, but I'm going to implore you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read just the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm actually going to read it out of the New American Standard. Um, because there's some wording there that I want us to see. Whatever translation you have is fine. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. When Evan was first born, uh, I remember pretty vividly waking up at like one in the morning, three in the morning, you know, and uh, Jen would be feeding Evan, and I, as a, a new dad, wanted to provide moral support. And so I, I wasn't smart yet um, about how it works that you got to tag team and get sleep and that sort of thing. But I wanted to, to be up with her. And so I would go over into the nursery where Evan was. And as uh, she was feeding Evan, I was reading a book. Sometimes I'd be reading it out loud. Uh, sometimes I'd be reading it to myself. And it's still one of my favorite stories. It's called The Iron Road. And uh, it's, there, there's a, another story, The Iron Road, which is about the development of the, the uh, Transcontinental Railroad. But the iron, this Iron Road is about a guy named James Maudsley. And uh, he was a British guy who heard about the problems that were taking place in Burma, or what we call Myanmar now. And he went and uh, traveled over there to just figure out what he could do to help out. And he ended up in prison, he ended up getting tortured, he ended up having hunger fests. And this guy actually moved the needle and changed the political climate of this country. This one guy who just went over with a heart to help out and to, to bring uh, support for those who were being uh, tortured and those who were being uh, exploited. And I remember reading that and uh, just like in the quiet, still hours of the night and watching my imagination go as I'm also praying over my son. Well, fast forward years later, one of the things that we as dad and our boys, we love to do one of our favorite things on earth is we love to listen to audiobooks, especially when we're in the car. 
it's got to be a really good story that like captures our attention. I mean, there's been times where I've tried to get really meaningful in those things, and they're like, yeah, this one's boring, Dad, you know. Um, but when we have a good story that grabs our attention, it's one of our favorite things to do. As a matter of fact, yesterday morning, Jen had plans, and so I don't know, I don't know, she was out, we knew she was going to go out, and the boys were like, Dad, it'd be a great morning for us to go to Shady Maple. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I figure Sunday morning here, I should confess my sins to you guys. <laughs> we went to Shady Maple and uh, struggled with gluttony, and... Um, the whole way there and the whole way back, we were listening to this story. We're in a series of books, and uh, you could hear a pin drop in the car, you know, because we're so captivated by the story. And this is the thing about a really good story. There's very few things in culture that are as powerful as a good narrative. I mean, if you have a good story, it has the ability to captivate minds, captivate attention. And a really good story has an ability to grip our hearts. And an extremely good story has the ability to subvert our perspective. It has the ability to change, fundamentally shift our assumptions about ourselves, about the world around us, about God. I can't say that that story was all that that we were listening to yesterday, but we do have stories like that. Stories are more than just entertaining. Stories can be more than just inspiring. See, the thing about stories is what they have the ability to do is they have the ability to take different characters in life and have their storylines intertwine in a narrative. You know, Damien could be reading a story and I could be reading that same story and we could begin to identify with something in that story that allows our storylines to merge together. And this is why families tell stories about things that happened in their past. Uh, if you've been around here for a while, you might remember uh, me talking about we as a family have a day of remembrance where once a year we celebrate the Deering Day of Remembrance where we tell stories about what it is that God's done in our past. We revisit houses that we used to live in. We get out old videos and films and talk about what it is the Lord's done in our life because we're a part of a story of what God's doing in our lives. And we have to remember those stories because they bring us together as a family. As a matter of fact, this Christmas, we were over at my folks' house for, uh, for an evening, and they have this wall in their house. If any of you have been to their house, there's this wall that has all these like family pictures of people who uh, most of them I have no idea who they are. They're from generations back. And, uh, but each one of them has a story behind them. And so I grabbed my boys and I talked to my dad and I said, hey dad, why don't you tell them the stories? You know, and so here he is pointing at these pictures on the wall of our forefathers, you know, and telling them, oh yeah, this guy had a tire shop here, and, and this guy used to ride his bike to Atlantic City, and this guy was a lawyer, and he and his brother didn't get along, no surprise. <laughs> and uh, there was all these stories that were about our background. And the thing is, is that, you know, when it comes to story, the more rich the heritage of our story, the more we begin to identify with one another. This happens not just in families, this happens in cities, this happens in nations, this happens in cultures. And so if for some of you right here, some of you in this room will know exactly what I'm talking about if I say the Philly special. Some of you know what that is, because we had a story just a few years ago in Philadelphia about winning the Super Bowl, and there was this moment called the Philly Special, and it's like a picture on a wall that says, I'm from Philadelphia, I'm, a, I'm an Eagles fan, and that 
name, that word means something to me. It's a story we tell. You know, and, and if, if you're an American, there are stories that we know. The Redcoats are coming. There's these stories we know about Lincoln and about, about different people throughout our history. And those stories have the ability to inspire us and to captivate us, but they also have an ability to identify us and to bind us together into a single story. The ancient Jews were masterful storytellers. Spectacular storytellers. They had a way over thousands of years of weaving the plot line, generationally passing on the legacy of storytelling until it swells up again in each generation. And you see the same words, the same plots, the characters being resurfaced in their generation. And that's why they were so big into these things, these lineages, you know, these genealogies that seem like really boring. But the reason is because what happens in those genealogies is they're saying these stories, they're not just fictional narratives. They're rooted in human history. And they're not just random legends that we tell. We're not talking about Zeus and, and Achilles. We're not talking about the Greek pantheon. We're not talking about false stories. We're talking about our forefathers who watched God move. And that same God can move in us today. And that's what the stories are all about. You know, um, we have recently, over the last century, come out of the age of modernity. And the age of modernity started back in the 1500s, and that was, there was the age of reason, there was the Renaissance, there was the Enlightenment, there was the Industrial Revolution, there was eventually the American Revolution, there was the peasant revivals, the, the Protestant Reformation, all of these things were taking place when people, the mindset of the modern world was this. Give me enough information, and by reason and by logic, we can figure out the truth of any situation, and we can progress forward. And then something happened. World War II. And by the end of World War II, in history, that is marked as the end of the modern era, when culture at large stopped believing that by human reason we could move forward. Because our progress led us to World War II. Since then, we've entered what many call the postmodern era. And in that postmodern era, what generally culture has started to believe, initially the belief was, is that there's no real way to discover truth, that there's no overarching story that binds us all together, that the more information we find, yes, it helps us progress our technology, and yes, we learn more about our cosmos, but the more we learn, the more we realize how little we actually know. And for many, that has scared us. And each person has gone their own way and said, that's your truth and this is my truth and there's no overarching absolute truth that binds us together. But there are those who haven't given up hope in the postmodern world and all they've said is, is that we were wrong when we thought that our logic was the way of finding the true story. N.T. Wright, the great theologian of our era, 
speaks right now often about the fact that when it comes to epistemology, the word epistemology just means the study of truth. How do we know anything that we know? That right now the, the, the leading theory is that humans find truth in one primary way. What is the story that all other stories fit inside? Truth is the greatest of all stories. Which story makes sense of all the other stories? I believe that. I believe that in my heart. I believe it in my bones. I believe it when I am encountering Jesus on a Sunday morning in my church family, listening to my pastor, leading worship, engaging God, and in that moment, there's something happening in my body, and I'm saying, I'm made for this. And it's the same story that I believe King David believed. But the climax of that story is in the center of our timeline. And there's an intersection. It's the story of Gentiles. It's the story of women. It's the story of slaves. But it's also the story of Jews, and it's also the story of those who are free, and it's also the story of men. It's also the story of the stars. It's the story of the depths of the sea. And it finds itself intersecting, climaxing right here at the intersection of all things in the cross. There's a grand narrative, a story that ties us all together. It is a good story. It's the best story. It's a great story. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the great dangers in life is getting severed from your storyline. We find ourselves in stories intersecting. Relationships come together and, and my storyline converged one day with Jen's storyline and it created a couple little other storylines that are growing rapidly. It is a painful thing when storylines sever. The God of the covenant has promised himself to us in the great intersection that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. That the covenant between God and his people is not built on the performance of his people. It is built on the rescue of his character incarnating in mankind, rescuing us and bringing us back to himself, even when we were the wayward children of God. This is the gospel. I recently heard this interview with a guy named Jordan Peterson. Anybody know that name? I don't know him real well. I don't know a whole lot about him. Um, and so this is not a promotion or a enough to, to say what I think about this guy. But the, the interview was a really interesting interview. It was an interview where apparently this, this man, Jordan Peterson, who uh, has a, a significant following, and his following has a, a lot of men who tune in to listen to him. And so one of the questions that came to him, he's a professing Christian, and so the question that came to him was, why do you think that when it comes to the American church, that it's highly weighted more toward women constituents than men. 
because of the statistics in the American church. So what is it that the American church is doing that doesn't have men uh, easily attaching to it? And this is what his answer was. It was essentially this. We've lost the ability to tell the story well. And when unpacking that, he was saying, a lot of men don't desire as much for connection as they desire for purpose and meaning. And so what they're looking for is what is it that is inspiring them to do the right thing today? What is it that is motivating them to take responsibility for the right stuff today? The gospel speaks that story, but is the gospel being relevant to us. The question is what story will draw me as a man or a woman, as a child or an adult? What question, what story will draw me to deal with my past? To reconcile parts of the storyline that need to be reconciled? What, what story will inspire me to embrace my vulnerability in the present? my weakness, to come to terms, to be honest with myself about who I am. And what story will inspire me to take responsibility about what is on me for the future? What story can give me courage, take responsibility, allow me to see where I fit in the grand narrative and it's worth engaging. It's worth dealing what needs to be dealt with, being honest about what I need to be honest with, and taking responsibility for what I need to take responsibility for. You know, there's a whole lot of fantasy stories out there. I mean, one of the things, if you have, if you have teenage boys, if you have, man, you cannot get away from Marvel. Marvel is like amazing at telling stories that teenage boys love. They have started to tell stories that teenage girls love, too. And I think Disney has for a long time told, told stories that adolescent girls love. But Marvel has captivated teenage boys. And what it does is it paints a picture of some guy with fantastical strength who's the true hero who overcomes all the difficulties in life and saves people. It tells this story. The problem with Marvel stories is that they're lies. <laughs> they're not true. It doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't watch them. It just means that if I base my reality on those stories, I will come up wanting every time. It's nice to escape into a fantasy world for a couple hours and think that life resolves that way because I have superpowers, but I don't. And sometimes those stories can really backfire on me. Unfortunately, many people feel that way about the Bible. Many people feel that the Bible is kind of a fantasy story. It's a great story. There's all sorts of amazing things out there, but the Red Sea party, even if it did happen, in our day and age, come on, you know? Jesus certainly seems like a hero, but then again, he's God. Dismissed. You know, here's the thing about the stories of the Bible, is that when we listen to the stories of the Bible, there's a big question inside of my heart and in my mind, is 
this story true? And if it is true, how true is it? And if it is really true, how fundamental is it to my existence and my behaviors? How much am I being shaped by the reality of these stories right here? Are they the story in which all other stories fit? And if so, are they the story in which I fit? History, the way we understand it, is, um, is a little bit hard to grab a hold of. I don't know if you, you know, like you can read two different history books and they can say two very different things. Right? Because history is always in the eyes of the beholder. And uh, there's, there's this thing that happens when it comes to any sort of situation, any sort of event. There's people looking from different perspectives, and they can tell the story from that perspective, and they can share that story with someone else. And that person who heard that story from them, that's their understanding of the story, because that's, they heard it from that witness, of course. And typically throughout history, that, uh, the dominant culture is the one that's going to be telling the story. I recently read a book that I highly, highly recommend to you. It's called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tidsby. It's a retelling of American history from the perspective of an African American. And it is a profound, small little read by a deeply devoted follower of Jesus who is telling parts of the story that have conveniently often been left out. It's really easy to have different perspectives on life. We all come from different locations, different vantage points. And when we read the Bible, it's very easy to read the Bible in a way that fits the story that I'm already wanting to see. You know? And so what the gospel means to one person or one culture versus what it means to another is, is a really interesting thing. And when we work at partnering churches together, you can imagine that part of what we're doing is saying, this denomination reads the Bible this way, and this culture tends to read the Bible this way, and we're trying to reconcile together, are we reading the same Bible, are we trusting the same God, and are we going the same direction, right? And so there's constantly a translation between perspectives around the story. Uh, I remember one day I was on my way to church when I was pastoring at Ephraim at Church of the Brethren, and I was on my way there. It was very, very early in the morning, and I was coming up to Academy, um, Main Street in Academy, and I was driving up, and I saw a body fly through the air doing a backflip that had just been hit by a car. The person who got hit by the car bounced up and ran. There was a guy who was at the church who was a detective for the Ephraim Police Department. I was a witness to a scene. Interestingly enough, what I saw didn't line up perfectly with what some others saw. And none of us really had all that vested of an interest other than just to say what we saw. But perspective changes things so much. If you have invested perspective, it changes it even more. Sometimes the facts that we see and the facts that we don't see is just radically different based on our perspective. And sometimes the, when, a, when a good detective can piece all that together and look from all the different angles, they can give us a fuller picture. But oftentimes the stories that we hear are only from one perspective and they leave us a little suspicious. And sometimes when we read the Bible, 
It's hard to imagine that there aren't missing perspectives. And sometimes it's easy for us to believe that the missing perspective is my own circumstances. Yeah, I get what this is saying, but I'm in this situation. And then it's easy to kind of say, I'm seeing light from a different vantage point. I'm not like these guys. Well, this is what I want to share with you is that this passage that we just read from Hebrews chapter 3, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so, what? Great a cloud of what? Witnesses. Each one of these witnesses. Who are the witnesses? It's what the chapter before it was about. That's what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews. It's all these people throughout history who by faith, everyone in their culture was saying things a certain way, but they chose to listen to God, to enter into that storyline, to trust God, and when they trusted God, they saw God show up. And then they wrote down their story, or someone else wrote down their story. And all throughout history, there are these people who trusted the storyline of God. And when they did and lived within it, they saw God manifest in a powerful way. And what this text is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, is that those who wrote those books are living in eternity with God. They are the witnesses with us to the character, to the nature, to the story of God. And since we are surrounded, since we are engaged with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off any storyline that would distract us, any sin that would entangle us, any lifestyle that's rooted in a false narrative, let's push it aside so that we can be inspired, hold on to the true story that will allow us to take responsibility for what we need to, to deal with the stuff in our past that we need to, to embrace our vulnerability and the reality of who we are right now the way we need to. It's an awesome gift to be surrounded by those who tell those stories. The four Gospels are four perspectives on the same story. You have Matthew, who's writing to, he's a Hebrew guy who's writing to a bunch of Hebrews. You have Mark, who we think is probably getting all of his information from the Apostle Peter. We have Luke, who clearly is writing to the Greeks and uh, to the Roman world in which he's in. And they're all writing to different audiences from different perspectives. We assume that Luke is getting a whole lot of his information from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so they all have these different perspectives that they're coming from and different audiences that they're speaking to. And it's a beautiful thing when you take all of that and you look in at the story of Jesus. And we call them the Gospels. John is years later reflecting back on the story, filling in the gaps, providing commentary for us about what we need to know about that story. Here's the danger is that there's false stories and false narratives. And they're the things that get us separated from our true story, from our true heritage. You know the false storylines. You know how it works. There's facts and then there's the story. You know that phrase? There's always the facts. There's the things that happen. Okay? We heard something crash back in the nursery. We saw a kid come running out. We saw a parent come out with eyes real big. And then everyone writes a story about what just happened. In our minds, we're all writing a story about what just happened. Okay? And every time that events take place, there's the reality of what happened. There's the perspectives on that reality, but then there's those who will capitalize on the moment to write a false story in order to manipulate the situation in order to get something across that they want to get across. Welcome 
to 2020 elections. <laughs> this is what political spin is. Everyone taking a bunch of stories and trying to write a narrative that gets you to believe it so that you buy into their perspective. That's what it's all about. False narratives are written to get off the hook, to justify choices, to destroy or take advantage, to manipulate mindsets. But there are also those of us who are easy targets because we want to believe false narratives because we want to live our lives certain ways. And anything that will justify my behavior, I'm willing to listen to. Anything that will justify my comfort zone and my perspective, I'm willing to listen to that narrative. And of course, those who know how to tell stories know how to find those who are willing to listen to those kind of stories. Throughout the scripture, we're consistently aware of the subversive nature of false narratives. You know how this works when King Saul is writing a story about David that isn't true? David's being a loyal follower of King Saul, but Saul is writing a story in his mind where he's like, he's out to get me, he's out to get me, conspiracy theory stuff. And then Absalom, David's son, writes another story about David that allows him to justify his behavior. You remember when it comes to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was those satraps who were, those officials who were writing false stories about them in order to get them out of the way for their own political expedience. You remember when it comes to Haman and Mordecai and Esther, that Haman is writing a false story about Mordecai to get him out of the way. All throughout the story of scriptures, you have people like Herod who were writing false stories in order to be able to kill baby Jesus, and God has to tune the wise men into the real story. There's this amazing false story thing that happens with religious leaders about Jesus, where in their mind they're writing a story about what Jesus is trying to do, and they're writing a false story. You know where it all starts, though. The original false story is one that happens in the Garden of Eden. And it's when... Satan does what Satan does. He comes to someone and begins to tell a story about God that is false. Instead of God being a good father who loves us and who has our best interests in mind, he sows seeds of suspicion that we can't trust God, that he's not good, that he doesn't have our back, that he's, it's not going to turn out well in the end if I just trust him. That he's a control freak. That he's just shaming me and holding me and controlling me and keeping me from being free. I want to live this way, but God wants to keep me here. And that's the lie that Satan has told since the beginning. And the reason is because it's the lie that Lucifer chose to believe when he wanted to subvert God in heaven and was cast down from heaven. He had to write a story, a false narrative. And then it keeps going and it keeps going. He's a storyteller. He sows suspicion, doubt, cynicism, and fear. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy arguments and strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What's that saying? Is that Satan is seeking to do one thing, getting us to believe a false storyline, because if he gets us to believe a false storyline, then he's got a stronghold in our life. 
And what Paul is saying is, we have weapons that destroy the strongholds of the enemy. And that is the gospel. The gospel is the true storyline that untangles the disturbing storyline of Satan that says, we are shamed by God, going to be punished terribly by God, and that he's going to love punishing us. And that we're hopelessly lost, and that there's nothing in our future, so we might as well live however we want to live. And instead, there's a gospel that's offered to us that says there's a God who was brokenhearted over the fact that we decided to not be with him. And he came from heaven down to earth to rescue us, to reconcile us to himself, to lead us back to him, to lead us into life abundantly for all of eternity, because that's how good of a God we have. That's the truth, and that's the gospel, and that's the story that untangles all other stories. And it's the story that inspired many martyrs over the last 2,000 years to lay their lives down graciously, gladly, to help the gospel story move forward so that others, too, could know the story of God. The voice of narration that you are tuning into, which one is it? Is it MSNBC? Is it Fox News? Is it BBC? Is it the sitcoms? Is it the romantic comedies? Is it the Marvels? Is it the Disney? What is it that's shaping our mindset? Is it the people around the water cooler at work? Is it the people here at church? The question really, though, of all of it, is it Jesus? And is it the story of Jesus? Is it the scriptures? Is it the gospel? Are we allowing our hearts and our minds to be washed every day with the word of God? Are we being inspired by the story of God? Is the reason that I choose to turn that on and turn it to whatever channel I do? Is the reason why I pick up the phone and who I choose to call? Is the reason why I eat what I do, when I sleep what I do, where I work where I do, is all of that being shaped by the story of all stories, the story of Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female, all stories find their climax and their convergence in the story of Jesus. It's our story. We're the church, and that story cannot be understood from a distance. The way that we understand this story is by becoming a character within it. He invites us to become a part of this story. He is the author of the story. He is the one who began to write the story before time even began. And he wrote us into the story. And when our storyline diverted with his, he entered back into our storyline in a very purposeful way in order to turn that storyline back and allow us to be a part of the grand story of all the ages, the story of the cosmos, the story. As this series goes on, I, uh, I, I want to invite you to take very seriously that this is not a story for Sunday mornings. This is not a story for a sermon series. This is the story of our lives. One day, for all of eternity, there will be this moment where all things are reconciled in Christ. All things are made good. And when we come to the end of all things and we walk to heaven, we are told that there is going to be a book that God's going to open. And he's going to look to see if we are in the book. And when he does, there's a name given to that book. What's it called? The Lamb's Book of Life. I can almost promise you that that's not Santa's list. It is not a list of names. You're in or you're out. It's a story. And if you trusted Jesus, your life will reflect the gospel. 
and you will be written in your story. And it'll be told for all of eternity. And we get to be part of it. That's what we're living for. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the goodness of God in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, and in the resurrection. In the name of Jesus.